0: The words that I'd like to direct your attention to this morning are found, once again, in the book of Acts. and We're going to look at Acts chapter 8, verses 4 to 24. Acts chapter 8. Beginning in verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention, because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying hand, their hands on them. And they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank You for the honesty of Your Word. Again, it verifies its trustworthiness. Lord, we thank You that you, you, you talk about both the good and the bad. Lord, even the, 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 the difficult things faced by the apostles in Samaria with the request of Simon. Lord, we want to we ask that you would give us wisdom. Give us understanding of your word. That we might not follow in the folly of Simon. But Lord, follow in the faithfulness of men like Philip. Who with boldness and faithfulness brought your word to others. And saw many get saved. Lord, for that to happen again, we need grace. We know that, that change only comes... By you working within us. And we want to be changed. That's why we're here. So we pray that you would work through your word to transform us. To be the people that you've designed us to be. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We might recall from uh, the overview that I gave over the book of Acts that began this series. That the book is actually structured around the theme of the word of God and its spreading as it spreads from Jerusalem to the apostles, from Judea and Samaria through the deacons and others, as we're seeing right now in in the book. And the word increases into Asia minors in in Greece through the apostle Paul from chapters 13 through 19. And then the, the final section highlights how the word increases despite persecution. And that's Chapters 19 through 28. Acts demonstrates essentially what was proclaimed through the prophet Isaiah. When he said, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that for which I purpose it. And shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And really up through chapter 8. We have seen how the word of God has continued to spread, particularly in Jerusalem. But as it spread, so did persecution. In particular, we saw the execution of the deacon Stephen. And after Stephen died, the apostles scattered. And one in particular, Philip, then brings the word of God to Samaria. And the text narrates the work of the word in Samaria in three parts. Uh, I think you could break down this section. uh, Verses 4 through 8, Philip continues the ministry of Christ in Samaria. Verses 9 through 13, the Samaritans turn from Simon to Christ. And then finally, 14 through 24, Simon makes the request to actually purchase the ability to uh, give the Holy Spirit to others. Let's look first of all at that first point, verses 4 through 8. Philip continues the ministry of Christ in Samaria. Again, it says in verse 4 that those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. They were scattered, of course, because of the persecution that uh, Saul of Tarsus lashed out against the church. And then it highlights particularly the ministry of Philip in verse 5. Amongst the Samaritans. Now, this isn't referring to the Apostle Philip, and we know that for a few reasons. First of all, uh, the the last Philip that was mentioned in the book was Philip the Deacon. That was in Acts six. Um, no other Philip, Philip the Apostle, isn't mentioned at all in the Book of Acts. The apostles in general are. Um, Luke also um, says that the apostles. Which would include Philip the apostle stayed in Jerusalem while all the other Christians scattered. And thirdly, uh, Philip mentions in this chapter the Philip, the Philip mentioned in this chapter doesn't have the authority of the apostles because he they need to call the apostles to come themselves in order to uh, lay hands on the believers there so that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Philip himself wasn't able to do that. The apostles need to do that. So this is referring to the same Philip mentioned alongside Stephen and others in Acts 6 who were appointed to be deacons in the church. And the point here in verses 4 through 8 is that even though Philip was not an apostle, he was just a deacon, he, like Stephen, who was also a a deacon, continued to spread the work of Christ and the apostles into Samaria. And that's highlighted by the kind of ministry they performed. They preached, just like Christ. But not only did they preach, they cast out demons, and they healed the lame and even the paralyzed. The same ministries that Christ and the apostles did. So even though Stephen and Philip um, weren't apostles, they still had the power of the Holy Spirit within them, which is what made their ministry so effective. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that every person who possesses the Holy Spirit also, therefore, has the power to cast out demons any more than they have the power to heal the lame and heal the paralyzed. Could God supernaturally use somebody to do that? I suppose. But that would not be what is expected. But I do believe we are supposed to see in this a clear succession of spiritual authority. Right? Christ specifically gave the apostles first, the twelve, the Holy Spirit, and also with that great power and spiritual authority. And then they laid hands on the deacons, giving them great power and spiritual authority. And that was manifested in their ministry. And yet they still did not possess the authority of the apostles. They needed still apostolic oversight in the giving of the Holy Spirit. And in the early church, the apostles served very similar to how the Word of God serves us today in the church. It was through the apostles that the church was able to know what God's will was. They, They had not yet had the New Testament produced. They had the Old Testament, and they could interpret that and teach that. But the New Testament was still progressively developing and would throughout the first century. And before it was finished, they looked to the apostles as authorities to everything Jesus said and taught. For instance, Ephesians 4.11 says, There was a planned succession of authority. Christ gave first apostles, the prophets, then evangelists, and then shepherds and teachers. Philip in Acts 8 is serving as an evangelist, bringing the word of God to a new people group. Then the apostles came in and authenticated his ministry demonstrating this truly is a ministry of Christ, of the Holy Spirit. And as the church grew, it would continue to look to prophets and to the apostles to give guidance to know how they should function, to know the will of God. And in time, as the word of God became more and more established through the development of the New Testament, pastors and teachers would be ordained, and they would be trained to teach both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And with the completion of the New Testament, the role of prophets and apostles was no longer necessary. For each person could just look to the word of God to have absolute confidence in what God's will was. But here the early church is just starting. And so the affirmation of the apostles was critical to affirm that what, was, what Philip was doing was truly a ministry of Jesus Christ. He wasn't just doing his own thing. And they affirmed that. This brings us to verse 9 through 13, where the Samaritans, in hearing Philip's preaching of the gospel, turn from, from uh, Simon, who was a leader in the community, to Christ. So the, the section describes the response of the Samaritans to hearing the word of God, and in particular, it focuses on a man named Simon, who was a magician. And he had previously amazed people throughout Samaria with his ability to perform miracles, so to speak, through magic. So much so that they called him the great power of God. And he loved that. For actually, it says he himself claimed to be someone great in verse 9. And so Simon had used his magic in order to make a name for himself, to, to build respect, to build admiration. And he was recognized in Samaria really as nothing less than a demigod. However, when the people hear Philip preaching, they hear the good news that, that God has provided salvation through faith in Christ, freedom from sin. They turn from Simon and they embrace Christ, and they're baptized. In fact, it says even Simon himself was baptized when he believed in verse 13. So their baptism being just a sign that they believed, confirming they want to follow Christ. This brings us to verse 14. When Simon asked to purchase the power of the Holy Spirit, it says that because the Samaritans had received the word of God, the apostles then recognized they should go because they need to uh, uh, give the Holy Spirit to these, these new believers in Samaria. And this was a privilege that was given, again, exclusively to the apostles in the early church. And the reason for this was the Lord needed to identify that they were the authorities. Even though all could receive the Holy Spirit, the Lord needed to show that the apostles were the true authorities within the church now that Christ had ascended into heaven. A true believer... Not only needed to believe the gospel and be baptized, but they needed to continue in the official teachings of the apostles, right? In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus, when he sent the apostles out, he said, go into all the world, preaching the gospel, right? Baptizing people, right? That that was how they responded to the gospel and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Preaching the gospel, receiving the gospel and being baptized wasn't enough. They needed to continue in the teaching of the apostles. And that's, of course, what we see earlier in Acts. When the church gathered together, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, Acts 2.42. And so since these new believers needed the apostles themselves to enable them to receive the Holy Spirit, it demonstrated that they were submitting themselves under the apostles' authority. So this emphasizes the importance of following the leadership of the apostles. The text then tells us in verses 18 through 19 that Simon was impressed by this. He was particularly impressed by the the apostles' authority. The Holy Spirit could only be given through them, and therefore he wanted that authority for himself. So he makes this abominable request in verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands... He offered them money, saying, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this request, uh, this request, uh, what Simon was asking for was, was authority that could be bought. And this is what the, the medieval church called the practice of simony. It derives its name from Simon's request here in verse 18. It refers to the the buying and selling of church offices. It was a common practice in the medieval church when wealthy parents who would want to provide a great opportunity for their kids would offer to pay church dignitaries to to have their sons take on church offices. They could be ordained then as bishops and cardinals and maybe even a pope. And you could see how this would lead to rampant corruption in the church when people who might not even be old enough to, to have any sort of leadership responsibility were given responsibility over entire regions. It led to rampant corruption. and This was the need. thus the need for massive reformation within the church. In fact, during his trial at the Council of Constance, John Huss was condemned for many things. And one of the things was his railing against simony, this practice. And in his defense for why he deplored simony, he cited a recent report of another priest who who had made a visit to Rome. This is what he said. Instead of the mild fatherly picture of the superior prince of the church, referring to the pope, I saw four men carry past me a youth. Swaddled in purple, gold and diamonds, who was supposed to be the vicar of him, the vicar of Christ, who did not possess enough upon which to lay his head. His face was impertinent, haughty, covered with the traces of passion. Upon his head, he wore a triple-tiered velvet cap. Heavy golden crosses dangled dangled from his earlaps, distorting them in an ugly manner. His fingers, from the thumb to the little one were covered with glittering gold rings, and the fastening which held his cape at the throat resembled the seven colored rainbow, sparkling with rubies, jaspers, topazes, sapphires, emeralds, opals, and diamonds. Recalling the Holy of Holies at Jerusalem, of which was written in the Old Testament. Upon his calves he wore azure silk stockings, and his slippers were woven from golden thread, covered with golden buckles and points. In such splendor I also saw him ride to pleasure on the following day upon a white horse, and several days later I saw him on the balcony of his palace, standing there in a like splendor, witnessing the decapitation of several heretics, whose naked bodies were then cast before some captured beasts of the desert. The beasts seemed much more merciful than Pope John the twenty third of his line, enjoying the blood of those unfortunates, because they did not tear them apart, but lapped up mercifully. The cut-off heads and the bleeding torsos. At his side stood a young maiden more beautiful than any I ever beheld, with whom the prince of the church joked, while the unfortunates were being led to their death. And this is where this is what the practice of simony led to: people who were totally disqualified from office leading the church. It's interesting. The same Pope John the Twenty-Third was actually deposed by the same council that condemned Huss. So when he actually returned to Rome, he was put on trial for heresy, for simony, and for immorality. And he was found guilty on all counts. In the 18th century, historian Edward Gibbon wrote that the more scandalous charges were suppressed. The vicar of Christ was accused only of piracy, rape, sodomy, murder, and incest. Those were not the most scandalous of charges, is what Gibbon said. This was the leader of the church at that time. Thus, the need for reform. Well, what, what was, was blossoming in full flower in the medieval church found its seed here in Simon's request that he might pay the apostles to have the same authority that they had. Back in Acts, Simon's specific request. Again, is to have their authority. Now, that sounds innocent enough. Right? We would want everybody to receive the Holy Spirit, right? What's wrong with his request? Well, what's wrong with it is why he wants it. He's seeking it because he wants authority. He wants to exalt himself just in the same way he used to use his magic powers to make a name for himself so that people would say he is the great power of God. He wants to be able to continue that now with being able to give the Holy Spirit. And Peter responds to his request with four solemn statements. And they each build off each other as they dig deeper into Simon's heart. Or better, yet it shows the darkness, the depth of the darkness of Simon's heart. First he says, Simon, you deserve death. For making such a request, verse twenty, Peter said to him, "May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money." Here, Peter's declaring both that he has no interest in money, because "May may your silver perish," but he's also emphasizing that Simon, the very fact that you would make such a request means you deserve to die. May your silver perish with you. Now why would Simon deserve death for such a request? Well, again, it's because he's seeking to use the Holy Spirit in order to exalt himself. He wants to spend money to gain the authority so that he might use the Holy Spirit to make a name for himself. Now Ananias and Sapphira lost their lives simply because they lied to the Holy Spirit. How much more evil would it be to request the authority to use the Holy Spirit to exalt oneself? Now imagine as a wedding gift a man offered a considerable amount of money to the groom to have the right to sleep with his bride On their wedding night. now if the groom were to take the money. Offering his bride to this man. He would be insulting his bride. Basically considering her no greater than a prostitute. Showing that he has more value for money than his wife. And the mere offer again is is Insulting. Simon's essentially seeking to prostitute the Holy Spirit here. To use the Holy Spirit. Let me pay you money so that I can use the Holy Spirit. He's offering money for the greatest gift that has ever been given to any mortal being. There is nothing greater than to receive the Holy Spirit. You can't pay for the Holy Spirit. That would mean the money has more value than the Spirit. So if the the apostles were to even consider this, they themselves would be as guilty as Simon. It's, it's, it's It's an offer of supreme arrogance. Which is why Peter says, not only does he deserve death, but he says you have no right to even receive the Holy Spirit because your heart is not right. Verse 21, you have no part or portion in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. Now first of all, nobody deserves to receive the Holy Spirit. It's a gift that's given to God by His grace. Given from God by His grace. But Simon actually disqualifies himself from receiving the Spirit's ministry. And he says, because his heart's not right before God. And and Peter knows this because the request shows the state of his heart. Right? Jesus, Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And this is why Solomon solemnly warned his son, guard your heart with all diligence. Because out of your heart flow the wellsprings of life. If that well gets polluted by the filth of this world, by the love of money, lust of flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, if it gets corrupted... Then all of your life will eventually become corrupted. What should lead to life will then bring out poison. Which is what's happening. It's poison coming out of Simon's mouth. Which is why Simon deserves to die. So Peter says, you must repent so that the intent of your heart might be forgiven you. Peter calls Simon to repent of his wickedness. Not, not, again, notice, not just because of the obvious sin of making the request, but he get, digs deeper. He says that the intent of your heart might be forgiven. You need forgiveness not just for your words, not just for your outward sin, but you need forgiveness for your inward thoughts. Repentance, again, does not merely involve confession. It does not merely involve turning from outward sin that people see. True repentance revolves changing the way you think about that sin. Changing your desire for that sin. Repentance involves the whole person. Your will, your thinking, your affections. Our thoughts and affections that led to that outward sin, that's what needs to be put to death. I think often in the church, this is where, where people get stunted. Is they get convicted of their sin, but because of self-pity, they just they, they, instead of repenting from their sin, that they just they, they, they blame other people. And they say, well, if my circumstances weren't so bad, then I wouldn't have sinned. If this person hadn't sinned against me, then I wouldn't have sinned. And they come up with lots of excuses, but they never actually change the root issue. Yes, circumstances do expose what's in our heart. And those circumstances, that might even be sin that exposes the sin in our heart. But we can't, just, we can't just excuse that sin and justify that sin. If it exposes sin in our heart, we have to repent from that sin in our heart. It's not good enough just to, say, to make excuses. If it exposes sin, that's the sin each one of us has to repent from. Well, Simon, therefore, needs not just forgiveness for his words, but the intents of his heart. And likewise, we need to be more concerned, actually, about the intents of our heart than just the outward sin that people see. Because if all we're concerned about is what people see in our lives, then all we're doing is we're breeding hypocrisy. We're, We're acting outwardly in a manner that impresses people, maybe even gains respect. But inwardly, we're harboring wickedness. And therefore, we're hypocrites. Outward repentance only produces hypocrisy. And hiding wickedness encourages self-worship. So Peter then gets to the heart of the matter in verse 23. He says, your problem is that you're enslaved by sin. Verse 23, I I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Now, Now, the words that Peter uses here lead me to believe... That Simon was, was clearly not a believer. As Jesus demonstrated in his parable of the wheat and the tares, it's often difficult to determine if someone's a genuine Christian or if they're just kind of going through the motions. Was Simon a true believer? Well, the state of Simon's soul, I think, is the most perplexing element in this text. Commentaries. Disagree on it. And that's because there's good reasons to believe that he was a believer. And there's good reasons to believe that he wasn't. The strongest reason to believe that Simon was a genuine believer who was just caught up in his sin because he's a young believer is because the text says he believed. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. So he got baptized, but he continued. He wanted to learn. He wanted to grow. So was he like one of the seeds that fell among the thorns that got choked out by the lusts of this world? Or was he like one of those seeds that struggled but eventually produced 10, 20, and 100 fold? It says he believed. Moreover, Simon demonstrates no resistance to Peter's exhortation, verse 24. He says, pray for me. So he he doesn't justify himself. He doesn't deny his sin. He just says, pray for me. A good response to being confronted. But there are other things I think we should also consider. First of all, we should keep in mind other situations in the scriptures where people are said to believe. And yet they demonstrate a lack of genuine transformation in their heart. They demonstrate they're not truly born again. And the most obvious of this is John chapter 6. If you turn your Bibles there and look at verse 31, Jesus is preaching to a number of Jews who had believed in him on account of the miracles that he had performed. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 31, it says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, These are the Jews who had believed him, "If If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus tells these believers, first of all, they need to abide. They need to continue. But second of all, he says, they need to be free from their sin. The point being, their belief was only superficial. If they had uh, truly been born again, they would have already been set free. They remain enslaved to their sin. And we know this because later on at the end of the chapter, they seek to stone Christ because of what he says. The whole point is that these are superficial believers, They're impressed by the miracles, they're impressed by the teaching, but there's no actual transformation. When Christ preaches that they need to submit to him and follow his teaching, abide in his word, they won't have anything of it. The very essence of being a believer means that they're no longer slaves of sin. As Paul said in Romans chapter 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And then he says in verse 14 of chapter six, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And so the fact that Simon particularly, not, sorry, not Simon, but Peter, Simon Peter particularly describes Simon in verse 23 is being in the bondage of iniquity strongly implies that he had not yet been born again. He is still in the bondage of sin. In fact, Peter says also that Simon's heart, quote, is not right. And that speaking of the Holy Spirit, you have no part in this. You don't deserve to have the Holy Spirit because your heart is not right. Until you are born again again. By the Holy Spirit. You need to still be transformed. The very fact that you would ask such a request shows that you don't seek to exalt God. You're still seeking to worship yourself, Simon. Your heart needs to be changed. It's not enough to to just intellectually believe. It's not enough just to follow for a time. You have to be transformed in your inward being. That you would love Christ more than anything else. That He would be your treasure. So much so that you'd be willing to take up a cross and be executed and humiliated on account of his name. And such a, such a miracle in a person's heart can only happen if the Holy Spirit changes them. Simon's demonstrating he's not been changed. In fact, Simon's response, though it is good by saying, pray for me, it doesn't include any remorse over sin just fear of the consequences all right Paul says in 2nd Corinthians 7 10 that that's the same kind of response that unbelievers have over their sin he says for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death for see what earnestness this godly grief is produced in you But also with eagerness to clear yourselves, with indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you proved yourself innocent of the manner. Simon's just expressing worldly grief. He's just grieving the circumstances. There's no real repentance. He's not grieved that he's offended the Holy Spirit. He's grieved that the consequences that he deserves might come upon him. And he says, don't bring me the consequences. That's the opposite of how a believer responds to sin. A believer says, you're right. I fully deserve the consequences of my sin. In fact, I don't just deserve to die. I deserve to go to hell. They make no defense. They own their consequences. And that's why they're willing to do whatever it takes to bring about reconciliation with other people that they've offended. They they admit that they deserve brokenness in their life. That they deserve death. That they deserve... Brokenness in their relationships on account of what they've done. They don't defend themselves. They admit that they're guilty. And they accept it. Even at the same time as they beg for mercy that from God and from others that, that there might be forgiveness despite what they deserve. They're not just afraid of the consequences. They're grieved by the very nature of sin. They hate sin more than they hate sin's consequences. And Peter's warning that Simon is in the the gall of bitterness is also very telling. The phrase he uses is actually drawn from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 29. In fact, go ahead and flip there. It's worth it to see it in context. Deuteronomy 29 verse 18. It's the very end, after Moses has announced the covenant that he's giving to Israel, their need to Be faithful that they might receive blessings and not cursing. And he says this in verse 18 of chapter 29. Beware lest there be any man or woman among you. Or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from Yahweh our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous And bitter fruit. Gaul is a bitter root. Verse 19. One, who when he hears the words of the sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Yahweh will not be willing to forgive him but rather the anger of Yahweh and his jealousy will smoke against that man and the curses written in his book will settle upon him and Yahweh will blot out his name from under heaven so Peter's warning that he is that Simon's in the gall of bitterness is no light warning he's basically telling Simon you are hanging from a precipice and slipping about to fall to your doom if you don't plead with all your heart for God to forgive you on account of what you've just asked. As Jesus warned in the parable of the wheat and the tares, the church also has included such people who think they're saved, but they've never actually experienced genuine salvation. They, they merely grieve the consequences of their sin. They merely want to to, to lead a better life. They want God to bless them. They want life to be easier. But they they don't really desire to repent from their sin and to live wholeheartedly for Christ. So their repentance is just superficial. And this concern is what prompted the author of Hebrews to write this at the close of his sermon to them. Hebrews 12 verse 15 He says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no one be like a bitter root springing up and causing trouble. And through him many become defiled. And see to it that no one becomes an immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no opportunity for repentance. Although he sought the blessing with tears. Point is, it was too late. And Peter doesn't know for Simon, is it too late? And that's why the author of Hebrews pleads, make sure it's not too late. Because there is a point where it will be too late. If you continue in the stubbornness of your heart. To just be content to be a hypocrite. To just be content to look like a Christian. But you don't actually want to obey God from your heart. Over time you might become so hardened that it will be too late. And you like Esau might want one day to seek repentance. And it won't be given to you. And so in obedience even to what the author of Hebrews says. I have to ask everyone here. Both young and old alike. Whether you're 10 years old or 80 years old. Have you truly been born again? Have you truly had your heart changed? Do you hate your sin? Or do you just hate the consequences? Is your faith merely intellectual? Or is it internal? Do you own your guilt and embrace that you deserve to bear all the consequences of your sin? Or do you still think that God owes you something? Do you deserve something from God? Another way of asking it is: is God your supreme joy? Do you love Him more than anything else? So much so that you wouldn't let anything stand between you and your Saviour. Or do you just see Him as a means to getting what you actually want? What actually brings you joy? Is He your joy? Or just a means to joy? Are you ready right now to repent? Right now to to believe, to put away from you all known sin, Or would you prefer just to remain in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity? If you're ready, I would say run to Christ. Look to Him. Cry out to Him. Plead with Him. To open your eyes, to change your heart, to transform you. So you might receive forgiveness and the joy that He promises to everyone who seeks to follow after. Let's pray together. Lord, you alone know the state of each of our hearts. And so, Father, if there is anybody here that, like Simon, just believed in you intellectually and followed you just externally, Lord, I pray that you would help them to see that, that they would know that they are rejecting you. And using you rather than worshiping you. And that you would help them to see what they're holding, what's holding them back, and what what actually is what they're being prevented from, that they would they would see all that you offer, all the joy, all the forgiveness, all the peace. They would know your great love for them. So much so that you sent your son, even though they are your enemies, that they might be reconciled to you. And that knowing your love, Lord, they would flee to you. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes. Pour out your grace upon their heart that they might know your peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.